Welcome. This is the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Dr. Lisa Johnson. This week, February 22, 2024, we feature articles on CD19 CAR T-cell therapy in autoimmune disease, tenecteplase for stroke at 4.5 to 24 hours, biomarker changes in years before Alzheimer's disease, and a hepcidin mimetic in polycythemia vera a review article on wearable digital health technologies for epilepsy, a case report of a man with fatigue and night sweats, and perspective articles on direct-to-consumer platforms for anti-obesity medications, on childhood obesity prevention, and on what is a mentor. CD19 CAR T-cell therapy in autoimmune disease a case series with follow-up by Fabian Müller from the Deutsches Zentrum Immuntherapie, Erlangen, Germany, and co-authors. Treatment for autoimmune diseases, such as systemic lupus erythematosus, SLE, idiopathic inflammatory myositis, and systemic sclerosis, often involves long-term immune suppression. Resetting aberrant autoimmunity in these diseases through deep depletion of B cells is a potential strategy for achieving sustained drug-free remission. This study evaluated 15 patients with severe SLE, idiopathic inflammatory myositis, or systemic sclerosis who received a single infusion of CD19 CAR T-cells after preconditioning with fludarabine and cyclophosphamide. Efficacy and safety up to two years after CAR T-cell infusion was assessed. The median follow-up was 15 months. The mean duration of B-cell aplasia was 112 days. All the patients with SLE had definition of remission in SLE, Doris remission. All the patients with idiopathic inflammatory myositis had an American College of Rheumatology European League Against Rheumatism major clinical response and all the patients with systemic sclerosis had a decrease in the score on the European Scleroderma Trials and Research Group Activity Index. Immunosuppressive therapy was completely stopped in all the patients. Grade 1 cytokine release syndrome occurred in 10 patients. One patient had grade 2 cytokine release syndrome. Another had grade 1 immune effector cell-associated neurotoxicity syndrome. And another had pneumonia that resulted in hospitalization. In this case series, CD19 CAR T-cell transfer appeared to be feasible, relatively safe, and efficacious in three different autoimmune diseases, providing rationale for further controlled clinical trials. John Isaacs from Newcastle University, Newcastle-upon-Tyne, United Kingdom, writes in an editorial that the future trajectory of CAR T-cell therapy for autoimmune diseases will be driven by efficacy, safety, cost, and acceptability. Diseases such as SLE and systemic sclerosis are serious, multi-system, life-threatening conditions. 
Consequently, if extended follow-up supports the current data, the benefit-to-risk ratio is likely to prove acceptable to both physician and patient, at least in certain cases of refractory disease. CAR T-cell therapy is individualized, difficult to scale, and expensive. However, managing patients with chronic autoimmune conditions with multi-organ failure is also expensive and the cost of CAR T-cell therapy will decrease with time. If CAR T-cell therapy is truly tolerogenic, meaning capable of producing immunological tolerance, then discussions will be broadened to potential justification of its use in patients with earlier and less refractory disease. Nonetheless, such therapy is in its early days, and there remains much to observe and understand. Considerations from the oncologic literature include the value, positive or negative, of previous B-cell depletion, alternative conditioning regimens, optimization of the CAR T-cell technology itself, and alternate means of targeting CD19 cells. It will also be critically important to fully understand potential toxic effects and their minimization. Cases of secondary cancer have recently emerged in the oncologic context, which raises the possibility of insertional mutagenesis. Furthermore, although B-cell depletion has provided a successful therapeutic strategy for autoimmune diseases, it was associated with poor outcomes after COVID-19. Phase two trials will therefore be essential to better understand the potential role of CAR T-cell therapy in autoimmune diseases. Tenecteplase for stroke at 4.5 to 24 hours with perfusion imaging selection by Gregory Albers from Stanford University, Palo Alto, California and co-authors. Thrombolytic agents, including tenecteplase, are generally used within 4.5 hours after the onset of stroke symptoms. Information on whether tenecteplase confers benefit beyond 4.5 hours is limited. This trial involving patients with ischemic stroke compared tenecteplase with placebo administered 4.5 to 24 hours after the time that the patient was last known to be well. Patients had to have evidence of occlusion of the middle cerebral artery or internal carotid artery and salvageable tissue as determined on perfusion imaging. The trial enrolled 458 patients. 354 patients subsequently underwent thrombectomy. The median time between the time the patient was last known to be well and randomization was approximately 12 hours in the tenecteplase group and approximately 13 hours in the placebo group. The median score on the modified Rankin scale at 90 days was 3 in each group. The adjusted common odds ratio for the distribution of scores on the modified Rankin scale at 90 days for tenecteplase as compared with placebo was 1.13. In the safety population, mortality at 90 days was 19.7% in the tenecteplase group and 18.2% in the placebo group. And the incidence of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage 
was 3.2% and 2.3%, respectively. Tenecteplase therapy that was initiated 4.5 to 24 hours after stroke onset in patients with occlusion of the middle cerebral artery or internal carotid artery, most of whom had undergone endovascular thrombectomy, did not result in better clinical outcomes than those who received placebo. The incidence of symptomatic intracerebral hemorrhage was similar in the two groups. In an editorial, Dana Leifer from Weill Cornell Medical College, New York, writes that, with regard to the primary outcome, Albers and colleagues found no significant between-group difference in the modified Rankin scale score at 90 days in an intention-to-treat analysis. In the safety population, no substantial difference was observed in 90-day mortality or in the incidence of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. So, tenecteplase appeared to be safe when administered in the 4.5 to 24-hour window in these patients, even if its use was not clearly effective with regard to the disability outcome. However, patients in the tenecteplase group had a higher incidence of recanalization than those who received placebo, 76.7% versus 63.9%, as well as a numerically lower infarct volume. Patients with occlusions in the M1 segment, a common occurrence in practice, were more likely to have functional independence with tenecteplase treatment than with placebo. 45.9% versus 31.4%. But the subgroup analyses were not corrected for multiple comparisons. The trial showed no effect of time from stroke onset to randomization with regard to the primary outcome. Taken together, the trial results tentatively suggest that pretreatment with tenecteplase before thrombectomy may be beneficial in patients with occlusions in the M1 segment when administered in the 4.5 to 24-hour window. But they also suggest that tenecteplase is probably unlikely to help patients who present with large vessel occlusions and do not undergo thrombectomy. The trial excluded patients who did not have large vessel occlusions, so it does not provide evidence about tenecteplase treatment in such patients. Additional trials may determine whether tenecteplase administered at more than 4.5 hours after symptom onset benefits subgroups of patients who are expected to undergo thrombectomy or who do not have large vessel occlusions. Biomarker Changes During 20 Years Preceding Alzheimer's Disease by Jianping Jia from the Xuanwu Hospital, Beijing, China, and co-authors. Biomarker changes that occur in the period between normal cognition and the diagnosis of sporadic Alzheimer's disease have not been extensively investigated in longitudinal studies. These investigators examined a cohort of participants from one of the nested studies in the China Cognition and Aging Study, with a goal of estimating the trajectory of changes in several CSF biomarkers in 648 participants who ultimately received a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease as compared with 648 
matched participants in whom Alzheimer's disease did not develop. The median follow-up in the study was 19.4 years. CSF and imaging biomarkers in the Alzheimer's disease group diverged from those in the cognitively normal group at the following estimated number of years before diagnosis. Amyloid beta 42, 18 years. The ratio of amyloid beta 42 to amyloid beta 40, 14 years. Phosphorylated tau 181, 11 years. Total tau, 10 years. Neurofilament light chain, 9 years. Hippocampal volume, 8 years. And cognitive decline, 6 years. As cognitive impairment progressed, the changes in CSF biomarker levels in the Alzheimer's disease group initially accelerated and then slowed. In this study involving Chinese participants during the 20 years preceding clinical diagnosis of sporadic Alzheimer's disease, the investigators observed the time courses of CSF biomarkers, the times before diagnosis at which they diverged from the biomarkers from a matched group of participants who remained cognitively normal, and the temporal order in which the biomarkers became abnormal. Richard Mayu from Columbia University, New York, writes in an editorial that the remarkable longitudinal study spanning 20 years by Jia and colleagues not only confirms the hypotheses of previous investigators, but extends and validates the sequence of changes in sporadic Alzheimer's disease. Levels of CSF amyloid beta-42 and the ratio of amyloid beta-42 to amyloid beta-40 in participants in whom Alzheimer's disease developed diverged from the levels in participants who remained cognitively normal at 18 years for amyloid beta-42 levels and 14 years for the ratio of amyloid beta-42 to amyloid beta-40 before clinical signs of disease appeared. The level of phosphorylated tau 181 in CSF increased 11 years before onset, and the level of neurofilament light chain, a measure of neurodegeneration, increased 9 years before diagnosis. These changes were followed by hippocampal atrophy and cognitive decline a few years later. Of interest, as the disease progressed, changes in CSF biomarkers also increased before reaching a plateau. One might consider the work reported by Ja and colleagues to be limited, owing to the inclusion of only persons of Han Chinese ancestry. But it only highlights that similar studies must continue and must be inclusive of other groups. Amyloid PET imaging is expensive and not always covered by government or private insurers. Lumbar punctures for CSF are not readily accepted by asymptomatic or healthy persons at risk. Assessment of plasma biomarkers are more practical, acceptable, and less expensive. Longitudinal investigations of plasma biomarkers in persons of Asian, European, African, and Hispanic ancestry have shown similar trends in biomarker changes preceding the onset of Alzheimer's disease. The importance of the work by Ja and colleagues cannot be overstated. 
Knowledge of the timing of these physiological events is critical to provide clinicians with useful starting points for prevention and therapeutic strategies. Rusfertide, a hepcidin mimetic for control of erythrocytosis in polycythemia vera. By Marina Kremienska from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, New York, and co-authors. Polycythemia vera is a chronic myeloproliferative neoplasm characterized by erythrocytosis. Rusfertide, an injectable peptide mimetic of the master iron regulatory hormone hepcidin, restricts the availability of iron for erythropoiesis. The safety and efficacy of rusfertide in patients with phlebotomy-dependent polycythemia vera are unknown. In Part 1 of this Phase 2 trial, 70 patients were enrolled in a 28-week dose-finding assessment of rusfertide. Part 2 was a double-blind randomized withdrawal period in which 59 patients were assigned to receive rusfertide or placebo for 12 weeks. The mean maximum hematocrit was 44.5% during Part 1, as compared with 50% during the 28 weeks before the first dose of rusfertide. During Part 2, a response was observed in 60% of the patients who received rusfertide as compared with 17% of those who received placebo. Between baseline and the end of Part 1, Rusfertide treatment was associated with a decrease in individual symptom scores on the modified myeloproliferative neoplasm symptom assessment form in patients with moderate or severe symptoms at baseline. During Parts 1 and 2, Grade 3 adverse events occurred in 13% of the patients, and none of the patients had a Grade 4 or 5 event. Injection site reactions of grade 1 or 2 in severity were common. In patients with polycythemia vera, rusfertide treatment was associated with a mean hematocrit of less than 45% during the 28-week dose-finding period, and the percentage of patients with a response during the 12-week randomized withdrawal period was greater with rusfertide than with placebo. Wearable Digital Health Technology for Epilepsy A review article by Elizabeth Donner from the Hospital for Sick Children, Toronto, and co-authors. For people living with epilepsy, as well as their families and caregivers, epilepsy is an unpredictable, challenging, and often frightening disorder. One-third of people with epilepsy have ongoing seizures despite medical treatment. Seizure-related injuries and accidents are most often associated with generalized tonic-clonic seizures, and up to 25% of people with such seizures have had at least one severe injury in their lifetime. Furthermore, generalized tonic-clonic seizures are the strongest risk factor for sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, the leading cause of epilepsy-related death. Seizure reports maintained by people with epilepsy are often unreliable, failing to document more than half of all seizures and more than 85% of nocturnal seizures confirmed by video encephalography.
the current clinical standard for seizure diagnosis. For children with epilepsy, parental reports of seizures are also unreliable, and up to 50% of seizures may be unrecognized. Challenges with seizure recognition contribute to diagnostic delays, inaccurate diagnoses and classification of epilepsy and seizures, and under- and over-treatment of underlying disorders. Wearable digital health technology may fill several critical gaps in epilepsy care. Accurate seizure-detecting wearables can provide data on seizure frequency, used to tailor medical treatments and identify treatment failures. In addition, when seizure detection is paired with an alarm feature, wearables may facilitate interventions during and after seizures, potentially reducing the risks of injury or death. These authors review wearable devices for seizure detection that are intended for long-term use to monitor a chronic condition and are acceptable to users and caregivers, while considering the current limitations of such devices and unanswered questions. A 21-year-old man with fatigue and night sweats, a case record of the Massachusetts General Hospital by Jonathan Carlson and colleagues. A 21-year-old man was hospitalized because of pancytopenia. Nausea and vomiting had developed four weeks earlier and resolved after one day, but fatigue developed. Two weeks later, Lightheadedness associated with changing positions developed, as well as night sweats. Fatigue persisted. On the morning of the current presentation, the patient had lightheadedness while lying down, and he presented to an emergency department. Laboratory studies revealed pancytopenia, an elevated blood bilirubin level, an elevated lactate dehydrogenase level, and a low haptoglobin level. Examination of a peripheral blood smear revealed evidence of macrocytic anemia with anisopoikilocytosis. Abdominal ultrasonography revealed splenomegaly. In a patient with a normal diet and no alcohol consumption, there might at first be little concern regarding nutritional deficiencies. Yet, a closer look is warranted in this case because several aspects of the patient's presentation could be associated with vitamin deficiency. Although this patient's neurologic status appeared to be normal, the hematologic and neuropsychiatric manifestations of vitamin B12 deficiency are substantially independent, each mediated by mechanisms that remain to be fully elucidated. The onset of clinical symptoms over a period of weeks to months would not fit the underlying biochemical progression of vitamin B12 deficiency, in which the depletion of physiological stores occurs over a period of two to five years. However, a clinical deficiency can be a threshold phenomenon, in which symptoms occur abruptly when compensatory mechanisms are exhausted. Taken together, the laboratory and histopathological findings are consistent with vitamin B12 deficiency due to pernicious anemia. Direct-to-consumer platforms for new anti-obesity medications, concerns, and potential opportunities. A perspective by Ilya Golovati 
and Scott Hagen from the VA Puget Sound Healthcare System, Seattle, Washington. The United States is at an inflection point in the care of the vast number, roughly 40% of adults who are living with obesity. Demand for the glucagon-like peptide 1, GLP-1 receptor agonist semaglutide has dramatically increased since the medication has gone viral on social media, where influencers have broadcast their short-term weight loss success. Numerous barriers to access GLP-1 receptor agonists have emerged amidst this demand. Months-long wait times for an appointment in primary care or specialty clinics, such as weight management clinics, are common. Patients frequently encounter clinicians with weight bias or lack of experience in the use of anti-obesity medications. Net prices for semaglutide vary substantially and may exceed $1,000 per month. Production issues have led to ongoing shortages. Furthermore, many insurers require that patients participate in a certified lifestyle change program during treatment or try other anti-obesity medications before they will cover a GLP-1 receptor agonist, and coverage criteria can be confusing. Direct-to-consumer DTC models offer a pathway for patients to obtain access to GLP-1 receptor agonists outside the confines of traditional clinics, often by means of telemedicine, but they may pose risks. DTC prescribing outside the patient's traditional care team may lead to harm if coexisting conditions aren't addressed. The monthly subscription fees used by many weight management companies, which often aren't covered by insurance, might result in people repeatedly stopping and restarting treatment, which could lead to a cycle of weight gain and loss. Weight cycling is associated with insulin resistance, dyslipidemia, hypertension, and an increased risk of death. Finally, Lack of clarity regarding regulatory oversight of DTC prescribing raises safety concerns. Online semaglutide platforms that partner with mail-order pharmacies have used drug compounding to provide the medication at lower cost. Pharmacies are permitted to compound medications without FDA approval while a drug is in shortage, as semaglutide has been. These authors propose a framework for identifying the features of online DTC platforms that would promote safe, reliable, and evidence-based care based on experiences with testosterone therapy and telemedicine standards of care. Reform that integrates reputable sources of DTC prescribing and expands insurance coverage to various platforms could help create a system in which multiple models operate in sync. Childhood Obesity Prevention Focusing on Population-Level Interventions and Equity a Perspective by Stephen Gortmaker and co-authors from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, Boston. Rates of childhood obesity have continued to increase in the U.S., with widening disparities based on race and ethnic group and associated long-term risks of obesity in adulthood, chronic disease, and death. 
Much attention has been focused recently on new weight loss drugs, some of which are approved for children 12 years of age or older, with trials in younger children underway. These drugs are expensive and have side effects, such as nausea and diarrhea, with possible late-onset adverse effects unknown. Evidence supporting their use over extended periods is lacking. Although pharmacology is important, scholars and policymakers shouldn't lose sight of population-level strategies that can prevent excess weight gain and obesity among children in the first place. Prevention is critically important, since childhood obesity is difficult to treat and tends to persist into adulthood. In addition, the authors examine three policy approaches to preventing childhood obesity. The first two strategies involve better aligning the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, WIC, and school meal programs with the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. The third approach involves implementing excise taxes on sugar-sweetened beverages. Growing evidence indicates that these strategies have been effective at improving nutrition, preventing excess weight gain or reducing obesity risk, and advancing health equity, and that they are inexpensive and offer good value for the money. Leveraging these strategies won't fix the problem of childhood obesity overnight, but it could, and has already begun to, slow the development of new cases, particularly among members of historically underserved populations, a major public health achievement. What is a mentor? A perspective by Suzanne Coven from Massachusetts General Hospital, Boston. A few weeks into her medical internship, decades ago, Dr. Coven realized that she didn't want to pursue the neurology residency she was scheduled to begin the following year. In retrospect, Dr. Coven thinks she made a common error, mistaking what interested her for what she wanted to spend her career doing. As a medical student, Dr. Coven had been drawn to the nervous system's fascinating anatomy and pathophysiology. But what she found she loved most during her internship wasn't anatomy or pathophysiology. Like most interns, she enjoyed solving diagnostic puzzles and managing complex acute problems. Great cases excited Dr. Coven. What thrilled her more, though, was seeing patients after their crises had passed. Her favorite part of internship was the part most of the other interns liked least, outpatient clinic. Comprehensive longitudinal care is the purview of the primary care physician, and a few months into her internship, she knew she was meant to be one. Confident as Dr. Coven was in this realization, she dreaded acting on it. How could she renege on her commitment to the highly selective neurology residency to which she'd matched, backing out of a position she had taken from someone who truly wanted it? Even more vexing, what if she was wrong in changing careers before she had barely started? Dr. Coven knew just the right person to help her with this dilemma. The dean of students at her medical school a kindly older physician who gave wonderful advice. What he said to Dr. Coven during their brief conversation that day 
changed her life. Here's what I want you to do, the dean said. I want you to go home and look in the mirror and envision that it's a few years from now and you're a neurologist. A patient comes to you with numb feet and you diagnose him with peripheral neuropathy caused by heavy drinking. Then you inform him that he should discuss his alcohol problem with his primary care doctor. Now tell the mirror how you feel about that. Dr. Coven didn't need to go home, and she didn't need a mirror. She knew exactly how she felt. And Dr. Coven has had many excellent mentors since then. How do you know when you've got the right mentor? If you leave a meeting with a mentor feeling like your possibilities have narrowed rather than broadened, you know you've got the wrong mentor. A good mentor makes you feel the way she felt leaving the office of her old dean nearly 40 years ago, crossing the street from the medical school back to the hospital, more grounded than before they'd spoken, and also lighter than air. In our images in clinical medicine, a 33-year-old woman who had been admitted to the hospital for septic shock from E. coli pyelonephritis was noted to have large kidneys on imaging. CT of the abdomen showed renal enlargement with heterogeneous decreased perfusion on both sides. A subsequent biopsy of the left kidney showed histiocytic infiltration of the renal cortex and round basophilic intracytoplasmic inclusions, which are known as Michaelis-Gutmann bodies. A diagnosis of renal malacoplakia was made. Renal malacoplakia is a rare chronic inflammatory disorder with a pathogenesis that is not well understood. It is thought to be triggered by defective intracellular killing of phagocytosed bacteria, particularly E. coli. It may manifest with recurrent urinary tract infections, which this patient had. In another image, a 63-year-old man with a history of follicular lymphoma presented with a three-day history of dyspnea. A chest X-ray showed pleural effusions, and milky yellow fluid was removed during thoracentesis. Histopathological analysis of a pleural fluid cell block showed small malignant lymphocytes with an immunophenotype that was identical to that seen in the patient's previous follicular lymphoma. A diagnosis of chylothorax due to relapsed follicular lymphoma was made. The most common cause of non-traumatic chylothorax is cancer, most frequently lymphoma. This concludes our summary. Let us know what you think about our podcast. Any comments or suggestions may be sent to audio at nejm.org. Thank you for listening.